So Ecclesiastes has been a bit of a road trip for us, and here we go again, chapter 4. <laughs> uh, Ecclesiastes really wants us to face the meaninglessness of life. But he also wants us to find God in the midst of the brokenness and the futility. He wants us to find and to trust God. People say, I don't believe in God, I'm over religion. But then when their friend dies, they go back to church. And they haven't really left religion behind. It's been dormant. And they still need the idea of God to give them comfort. So they run straight back to church. Or people say, I'm not religious, but they send their kids to Sunday school and they're quite happy for their parents to go to church. <laughs> and they never challenge their parents' faith or critique their parents' faith. And yet, if their parents stop believing, or if their children who are going to Sunday school stop believing, these people start to experience the trauma of the loss of belief. It's like Santa Claus. You think as an adult you don't believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> you're too clever, you're too old to believe in Santa Claus. But if you've got kids, you experience the comfort of believing in, in Santa Claus, even though you don't. <laughs> and whenever the child comes to stop believing in Santa Claus, it's only then that you experience the loss of belief. You never thought you believed it, but you had the psychological comfort of the belief. And when they lose their faith, you experience the trauma of that loss. Often children will pretend to believe even when they don't because they know it gives their parents such comfort. And often people who say, I don't believe in God, still want the comfort of believing in God because we all want meaning. We all want to know that our lives make sense. We all want to believe in a God who will make it all okay. And this is what Bonhoeffer called the God of, from the machine. The God that we wheel in whenever we're frightened. And we wheel in whenever we've got a problem we don't have an answer to. He called it the God from the machine because in Greek plays, third-rate playwrights would use this device literally called the God of the machine. Where they'd wheel a person who's strapped into a device, they'd wheel this guy in from above and they would act as a god or an angel. And so if there was a problem in the script, if they wanted to kill somebody off or they wanted to move things on quickly, they kind of wheeled this guy on who pretended to be a god and through some magic spell the problem was dealt with. And then they wheeled him out. <laughs> And it was seen as a really bad play because God wasn't really involved in the whole narrative, the whole script. God wasn't part of the story. He was just wheeled in whenever you needed him to solve a problem in the script. And Bonhoeffer says that what, uh, that's what many of us do with God. He isn't part of our whole lives. He's just something we wheel in whenever we don't have an answer or we're, or we're frightened. And we are frightened. We are terrified. 
We are scared that life will make no sense whatsoever. We are afraid that we're going to die and there'll be nothing after death. And that everyone we know will end. And that everything we have done will come to nothing. We're afraid. We're scared that the last act of every human play is just blood. And so it's very natural for us to reach out to a God figure, to believe in God, to want to believe in God. And it's very hard not to believe in God. This is my problem with the new atheists. They talk about not believing. But where's the trauma? As I read those books, where's the pain? Where's the suicidal scream? Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the loss of God, the absence of God, and it's terrifying. It's devastating. It's the ultimate horror. And I think most people who say that they don't believe in God can only say that because they haven't let go of the comfort of believing in God. And they still haven't faced the horror of the meaninglessness of life without God. And they still haven't experienced the trauma of the loss of God. For me, this is why Ecclesiastes is so brilliant. He forces us to confront the way life really is, to confront the meaninglessness of life fully in the face so that we do what needs to be done in our relationship with God, that we fully face the reality of God, our need for God, our need for his future, our need for his salvation, our need for his forgiveness, our need for his plan. It's only when we fully engage with the utter meaninglessness of life that we then are free to fully see how much we need God to depend on God, to, to walk with God and to entrust ourselves to him. Tonight we're up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 where Ecclesiastes looks at the issue of work. And in the context of painting another very bleak picture of the meaninglessness of life, in that context he says, yeah, let's look to God. Let's discover God in the meaninglessness. Let's find the beauty and life and faith in the midst of the brokenness and the oppression. Now he sets out the meaninglessness in three sections. Verses 1 to 3, he sees oppression everywhere, if you're following. In verses 4 to 6, he sees that work and achievement is motivated by jealousy and greed. And then in verses 7 to 12, he sees the tragedy of loneliness. Oppression everywhere, greed and envy everywhere, the tragedy of loneliness everywhere. And all, all this he tells us, hey, we need God. We need to radically rest in God and find the tranquility and peace that he has to offer. Well, let's, I'm just going to jump right into verses 4 to 6 and then look at 7 to 12. Let's look at this verse 4. And he says, I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. 
envy. And then verse 6, he talks about greed, as we'll see. So this is one of the themes that he keeps coming back to again and again and again. Envy and greed, envy and greed. Envy of one's neighbour. A dog-eat-dog world. People oppressing each other. People willing to step on others to climb the ladder of success. Willing to sacrifice relationships. Willing to sacrifice principles to get ahead. Corruption everywhere. And Ecclesiastes calls it evil. Back in verse 3, Better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. What a statement. He says envy and greed are evil because they oppress people. Those on the bottom, the poor, the powerless, have no comforter. They have no comforter. And those on the up and up are never satisfied. They're chasing after the wind. Now notice the contrast he makes between verses 4 and 5. He says, verse 4, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one's, one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And then he says, verse 5, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So this gives us two different approaches. Both of them are evil. Ecclesiastes contrasts the person in verse 4 who's greedy and envious. They have too much ambition and too little contentment. But the fool, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. They have too much contentment, but too little drive, too little ambition. Now there's a happy medium between the two, that's the point. And later in Ecclesiastes 7, he addresses this and says, hey, if you see one extreme over here and another extreme over there, and they're both evil, aim for the middle. There needs to be balance in our lives. And this will be the pathway to true contentment. One of the problems with being overly ambitious to being driven by greed and envy is it divides families. You might remember the story of Jacob who cheated his brother Esau out of jealousy and for a whole generation the heartache, the division that was experienced by that family. According to Job, jealousy kills and according to Proverbs 6.35, it arouses anger and Proverbs 14.30, jealousy produces rottenness in the bones, which might be a way of saying, uh, talking about illness, we become sick through jealousy or it might be a way of just talking about a really bad spirit. Jealousy, it's just not, it is just an evil. But the opposite extreme is to fold our hands and that is just as evil. Folding the hands is mentioned 13 times in the book of Proverbs. It's always about a lazy, good-for-nothing, foolish person. It's talking about if we have work that needs to be done, that we should be doing, and in Proverbs, work isn't for personal gain or advancement or accumulating wealth. Work is for caring for yourself and others. And there are things that we are responsible to do. So to shirk that work, to put it off, to postpone and to procrastinate, is what fools do. Because with all that work to do, he folds his hands, he sleeps in, he avoids. And that's part of what Ecclesiastes is addressing here. It says, if you just fold your hands and cop out, and disengage from life, 
which is the opposite of you know, extreme envy and greed and overdrive. Folding your hands means you will ruin your life, he says. You will destroy yourself. Not just physically, but emotionally, economically. Loss of friends, loss of prospects for marriage. A whole range of things will happen. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. So it might have started as contentment, but it ends as absolute ruin. So what is the path to lasting contentment in this meaningless world? How can we find true peace in our work? Well, Ecclesiastes goes on. Where is the true contentment? Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So he's saying contentment can exist where the individual actually possesses fewer material goods but finds satisfying rest. According to verse 6, one handful with tranquility. Some translations translate that rest. One handful with rest is better than two handfuls with toil. The word two handfuls in the original language is used over and over again to express this concept of, I'm trying to get as much as I possibly can into these hands. If you hold a, a bowl of lollies to a small child, what do they do? Or some will just try and get as much as they possibly can in their hands. Um, two hands together. That's the picture here. It says, one handful with rest is better than two handfuls with toil and chasing after wind. In other words, all that work that we are driven to uh, through envy, through jealousy, through greed, all that labour is just grabbing everything we can, taking it, bringing it to ourselves, holding onto it, controlling it, hoarding it, holding it with both hands, saving it for ourselves and we don't have a hand left to grab rest. So he says we need rest. We need recreation. We need downtime. We need relaxation. We need to recharge the batteries. We need time with our family. We need time for ourselves. We need time in prayer, in the word. We need time for friends. The concept of Sabbath is no work. <laughs> That's what the word Sabbath means. God didn't rest in the sense of resting from labor because he was tired. When, so when we say God actually didn't work on the Sabbath day, we mean no work. <laughs> Sabbath means work stoppage. One day a week, no work. It doesn't mean, this, this Sabbath idea doesn't mean exhaustion or needing rest. It simply means at least a day a week, to stop work. In order to give attention to spiritual matters, celebrations, relationships, life is more than work. So in Ecclesiastes, time and culture, they rested from work, didn't work, for one day in seven. So the Sabbath really is a totally different word from rest. The word for rest is the name Noah. Noah means rest. 
Sabbath means stop work. Noah means rest. And of course we need both. And the word for rest here is translated, well, it's related to the word Noah. So the concept here is not just stopping work. The concept is to be restful, to find a tranquility in your life through not working too hard. That's what he's saying. To find a restfulness that is even there during your work. It's a peace of mind, a calmness. I'm settled. I'm content. I'm at peace. I'm quiet. It's not a driven more, 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 work, 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 work. It's a, hey, I've got less, but I've got rest. And I've got restfulness. And I've got time off. And I've got plenty of time allocated to not be working. If we take a Sabbath each week and stop work, then we will be restful through the whole week. Hopefully. Um, Then we will be restful even as we work. And we can take that time off, that Sabbath and that every evening, lunchtime, uh, one month a year, all kinds of holidays. We can do that because we trust in God. God will provide what we need so we don't have to feel that we have to get all of it into our two hands. Now the word he uses here for one hand with tranquility (laughs) is a flat palm. It's a different Hebrew word in the original language. One hand with tranquility, that's what he's talking about. The word that uh, he translates two, two handfuls can be also translated the word fist because it's the idea of hanging on to it, getting it, controlling it, having it, working hard to keep it. So maybe you could do this. Maybe you could hold out one hand like a palm and then the other is a fist. Maybe you could do that for me if you feel comfortable. What's the difference? What's the difference? One's working hard. Yeah, really, really, you know. Yeah. This one's relaxed. Yeah. This one's tension. This one's relaxed. Yeah. One hand can receive things being put into it. One has more volume, actually. Yeah. In the end. Yeah. So this is really about trusting God, isn't it? Right? This is, I'm not trying to control it. I'm allowing God to put things in that hand. I'm, I'm receiving from God and I'm giving generously to others. This is, I'm controlling it. It's me. I'm doing it. I have to have it. I have to guarantee that I've got it in the future. Really. But this is a much more open, holding on to things loosely, much more peaceful. And this is what he's saying. Better one handful with peace, tranquility, rest, restfulness, calm, than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Okay, so one handful with tranquility is the way to go. Less possessions, but more contentment. Jesus said, 
Come to me, all who, who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wants to welcome us into this life, this life of, hey, we can trust God. We don't have to hold so tightly to things. He can give us what we need. Then look at verses 7 to 12. Ecclesiastes now moves from the problem of jealousy and envy to the problem of loneliness. Now why does he move from the topic of greed and envy to the topic of loneliness? It's quite a jump, isn't it? Let's discuss this for a minute. In what ways does envy lead to loss of companionship? In what ways does envy and greed lead to loneliness? What do you think? Okay. Creates isolation. How? Okay. Overly focused in on yourself rather than your relationships. Maybe, maybe a lack of time for others. A lack of prioritising relationships. Yeah. What else? Why would envy and greed lead to loneliness? Okay. A lot of taking, not giving. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, envy, envious and greedy people are not very good people, not very pleasant people to be around. Yeah. What else? Why would an envy and greedy person have less friendships? I think family often suffers. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. It's all about yourself, your drive, your ambition. It's quite a high divorce rate for politicians and for company CEOs uh, and those on the rise in big corporations because the family suffers. why? Well, because envy, greed, selfishness alienates. Now notice, through all this, he keeps coming back to the meaninglessness of it all. So in, ch- in verse 1, Again I looked and I saw all the oppression, and they have no comforter, they have no comforter. Then verse 4, I saw all the toil and all achievements spring, they all spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. And then he starts talking about loneliness. But this time he says it's all meaningless twice. Verse 7, again I saw something meaningless under the sun. And then at the end of verse 8, this too is meaningless, a miserable business. So what's happening here when he talks about loneliness? Twice he says in the space of two verses, it's all meaningless. What's his point? As soon as he starts talking about loneliness... The meaninglessness comes to the fore. Loneliness is a terrible, terrible tragedy. Relationships are important. Very important. So we have no comfort in verses 1 to 3. We have no contentment in verses 4 to 6. And in verses 7 to 12, no companionship. Look at these ideas. No comforter. No contentment. Jealousy and envy and greed in our world. And no companionship. And if you look at verses 13 to 16, he looks at politics and he says, no consistency. And this is our world. No comfort, no contentment, no companionship, no consistency in leadership. And this is the emptiness 
This is the meaning, the, the futility of our lives. And all the way through this section, there's a reference to one and two. Literally, there's one man without a second. And he defines the second as neither a son nor a brother. He's all alone. And this goes way beyond marriage or way beyond friendship. This is like a man who is utterly alone. Even the Lone Ranger (laughs) needs Tonto, right? (laughs) We all need a companion. And we sometimes think we can go it alone. We can't. The drive here is that we need a friend. We need someone to hold us accountable. We need someone who will just care about us. You know, I mean, life, there's a difficulty in life. And without this, it's so hard. Two are better than one, and a strand of three cords is not easily broken. So we need this priority, don't we? To gather people around us who we will journey with in our lives. Not just within our families, but outside our families. Stuart is someone who keeps me accountable, keeps me on track, keeps pulling me back. Okay, what are we doing? Keeps supporting me. It's great to work with him because we have this like accountability, we'll journey together, side-by-side kind of relationship. That will make our life much more restful. It has to. This is how God provides. And we need to build relationships like this. And if you're a member of SOMA, I really encourage you again to get into a DNA group, to disciple, to pray, to encourage, just to be involved with someone deeply. With two others, it would be great. Our bottom line is everyone needs to start with two or three others. Our bottom line is that if we all did this, what would become of SOMA? How would it revolutionise our work and our lives? God declared that it is not good for a man to be alone and that was before the fall. (laughs) How much more after the fall do we need each other? God advocates companionship, not a solo life. It doesn't necessarily have to be marriage, as I've said, but we need to be accountable, to journey with, to work with someone else. And then in verses 9 to 12, he he sets out what we lack if we have no companion. Three things, no one to help, no one to keep warm on a cold night, no one to cover our back. These three examples come from travelling in the ancient world. No one to help, no one to to pick you up out of a, a ravine that you've fallen into or a ditch that you've got stuck in. We all need help with all the things that we have to do. Someone to help. The second is no one to keep us warm. This isn't talking about marriage. This is talking about you're on the road with some companions. It's getting dark. It's getting cold. You need to camp for the night. So what they do in those days was they'd all sleep back to back to keep warm. If you're, not out, if you're out there all by yourself, how can you keep warm? And thirdly, encountering robbers on the road. You have no one to cover your back if you're all by yourself. No one to protect you. Verse 12. The implication is we all need a helper. We all need a comforter. We all need a defender. That's the point. 
We all need at least one. <laughs> Helper, comforter, defender. To journey with us in our work and all the things that we need to do. Our study, whatever it is you need to be doing. If we're lonely, we don't have these three. And he concludes, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. As Christians, who are our companions? Each other, yeah. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. So it's as we twos and threes connect deeply with each other that even the Spirit is there. Spirit of Christ binding us together. The Spirit, of course, the help, helper, comforter, defender. So Ecclesiastes is saying, what do you aim for in life? <laughs> you know, given, given the way the world is, given the, look, if we face the reality of life, what do we do? How do we live life before God, trusting him? One handful rather than two. That's going to be so much more restful. Really looking to God to provide. And secondly, two companions rather than doing it alone. Also, that's how God provides. That's a restful, tranquil, calm life. So if you don't mind, we're going to get you to close your eyes and, and Beck's going to come out and pray in a minute. Um, but if you want to, you, you might want to just fold your hands just with our eyes closed uh, if you feel comfortable. Is there anybody here tonight who has folded their hands? You've checked out. You've let it all slip away. For whatever reason, you doubt you can do it, you you're afraid, you've been hurt before when you've tried to do things. You don't really know how to do things. You just seem to have insurmountable problems getting out of bed. And t tonight's a chance to deal with that. Tonight's a chance to repent and start a new journey. I just encourage you tonight, if that's you, you're stuck. You're stuck in passivity. You're stuck doing nothing. You're stuck to seek a companion. Seek someone to, to come alongside you, to help you, to show you how, to get your back, to, to comfort you, to speak words of life in, into you. The gospel which says, yes, in the power of God we can all stand up. So maybe tonight it's too... Choose a companion. Choose someone that you can approach who will help you. There are many people here who would be very skilled to bring you that help and delighted. So maybe you'd like to make a fist with those two hands. Is there anybody here? You've been working, working, working. And letting everybody know how hard you're working. You know, striving and toiling and achieving and accomplishing. And if you're here today and you use the words often, stress, worry, busy, 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 busy. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. We have this language that now has become normal in our culture. It's absolutely insane. 
It's totally out of control. It's two-fisted misery. And it gets passed off as, well, I've just got to do all this to keep up. No, you don't. We have a God who looks after us. We have each other. Or maybe in the past you've made unwise decisions, you've got overly into debt and you've made poor housing choices, education expensive, holidays living beyond your means, didn't have a financial plan, didn't have a buffer zone built in, you've made a real mess of it. And you're in deep and you're just working, working, working because of the decisions you've made in the past. Tonight there's help. Seek a companion. There are so many people here who are financial advisors who have expertise, who can help you get out of the mess. But those with fists, I just ask you right as we close, what's inside the fist? If you could just open a little bit of a crack, what's in there? Stress, not sleeping well at night, you find yourself not having time for even basic things like exercise and eating well? Do you find yourself consistently saying to people around you, at some point I'll have time for you, but right now I'm just too busy? What's in there? Envy, fear, greed, rivalry, an obsession with achievement? You're trying to win someone's approval. What's in there? Greed is the lie. If I just had this thing, then my life would be great. And tonight, take a step away. Ask somebody, find a companion who can speak the gospel of comfort into your life. That you don't need anybody's approval. That God has your best interests at heart. Seek someone out tonight. Better to have one hand with tranquility and two working together are better than one.